Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 14th, we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. In today's text, St. Paul appeals to the Corinthian congregation that they would no longer quarrel in rival factions, but instead they would have the same mind and judgment in the name of Jesus Christ, whose cross is the power of the gospel that has been proclaimed among them. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Christian Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Mount Hope Lutheran Church and School in Casper, Wyoming. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Pastor Preuss, talk to us again just briefly about the Luther Classical College that you guys are starting out there in Casper. How are things going? Things are progressing wonderfully. we got our academic dean in uh, full swing, and we've got uh, about 150 students pre-enrolled, uh, including Fantastic. 80 uh, who are interested in coming for an inaugural year in 2025. We just uh, finished the first stage of our um, nomination process for the president of Luther Classical College, and we hope to be able to announce a president in uh, December or January after we've uh, interviewed some very wonderful candidates. Fantastic. God be praised. All right. Yes. So, Pastor Price, you and I have the opportunity to talk about part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. We're just getting into this epistle now. This is the really into the meat of the letter. Uh, talk to us about the context of this letter, anything we need to know, especially as we prepare to look at this section today. Yeah, so the context of this letter is that Paul wrote it in 55 AD when he's in the city of Ephesus. Uh, and that was after spending a good year and a half in Corinth. He actually uh, was about to leave, and then God actually assured him he had plenty of people in this city and to stay there. And uh, you can kind of read me between the lines and see why uh, Paul would want to leave. Corinth was, uh, didn't have the best reputation um, for morality, let's say that. Um, and you're, we're going to see this as you go through the, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. It's what Paul's addressing half the time, is just moral failure after moral failure amongst the Corinthians. And, and, and that's uh, especially the case when it comes to sexual sin. Um, there is a, a Latin word um, called to Corinthian, and to, <laughs> to Corinthian uh, meant to uh, spend a lot of money on a prostitute. Um, so the, the word of the city um, uh, became synonymous with debauchery, with sexual sin, and so forth. Uh, it was a port town, and uh, that was pretty typical of port towns, but it was the port town of all port towns. A lot of ships going through there, a lot of sailors, and we just uh, know what happens uh, when uh, uh, in, in those situations. So um, Paul, when he uh, writes this letter, is both addressing those issues. He's also specifically writing back because they have written him. Um, so he'll refer to this letter that they wrote him, questions that they've asked him, and uh, he'll answer certain questions that, that, they've, uh, that they've asked. So he's got this 
two-pronged uh, reason for writing them. And the other uh, really cool thing about this is that he actually has some Corinthians with him in Ephesus while he's writing. And so it's not, uh, it's not just that he's received a letter from them, he's also received people from them, and he's gotten, uh, with the living voice, a, a report on what's been going on uh, there in, in Corinth. It would, have been, it would have been fascinating if we could actually read the, uh, the letter that uh, the Corinthians yeah. wrote him, but the Holy Spirit did not preserve that for us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned, especially in the context of Corinth, the, the reputation of the city, and rightly so, for the, the moral decay that's there. That doesn't really come up too much in this section just yet. So before he starts addressing some of those things that, that they specifically wrote to him about, he, he starts in a different place. He starts with this matter of, of unity in the name of, of Jesus Christ, which is really where our section is going to take us. Yeah, that's exactly right. He, he really doesn't get into the uh, moral problems or the moral decay, you could say, um, until the fifth chapter. The first four has to do with the foundations of the faith um, and the divisions that have to do not with necessarily moral failure, uh, but with uh, partisanship, taking sides, liking one pastor over, over another. Um, and he... Uh, he establishes in this first chapter and the second chapter uh, especially uh, that the foundation has to be Christ. It has to be Christ crucified. It has to be his word. It has to be the one baptism for the remission of sins. Um, and uh, that Christ is not divided. The word of God is not divided. The church is not divided um, into uh, various uh, factions based on basically partisan politics. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and take a look at this text. This is 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or... I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's our text for today. That is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17. Now, Pastor Price, take us into this appeal that Paul gives in verse 10, as it's translated there. What's, what is he appealing here? He is uh, appealing uh, to them as brothers. That's significant. Uh, just to start out with, that he recognizes them all as brothers in Christ, as members of, yeah. of one family, and so they should act like it. And then by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that name, of course, is the, is the name of God, Father, Son, and uh, Holy Spirit, and the name in which they were baptized, and so they should be united. And then that they're to agree and have no divisions among themselves. Now, the divisions there, there are two basic words for divisions in, in Greek, um, and one is where we get the word schism, 
uh, or schism, uh, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, and that's schismata. And then uh, the the other word is the word where you get heresies. And this is the word uh, schismata. Um, and uh, Jerome, who was a father of the church, he's the one who uh, translated the Bible into, into really uh, decent Latin, uh, known as the Vulgate, and that was used for a long time as the, as the Bible of the church. But Jerome made uh, a very helpful distinction between schismata, schisms, and, and heresies. And he said that the schisms, uh, schisms arise because of morality uh, and because of practice. And the schisms that are in, whereas heresies, right, they, they happen because of false teaching, just like denying that Jesus is the son of God. Um, so this is what St. Paul is dealing with in Corinth, is not necessarily people f- teaching outright false doctrine, like that Jesus isn't the Christ, but rather errant practice and errant morals. Um, so if you go through, like we start with, them being partisan and saying, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Peter, I'm for Paul, and so forth, having favorites with their celebrity pastor. Um, and that's a practice issue. Um, and then as you go on, it has to do with uh, errant practices in marriage, errant practices in suing your brother, errant practices in uh, marriage again, <laughs> uh, errant practices in having women pastors, uh, in the organization of the church, having uh, people uh, prophesying and speaking in tongues at the wrong time and so forth. So it's all got to do with with practices that are dividing and causing hostility. And that really tells us that it's not just about getting the doctrine right. It is about getting the doctrine right, but it's not just about getting the doctrine right in the church. It's also about loving one another and conforming our practice to, to our doctrine, right? And so um, if we believe that there is one Christ and one baptism, that's doctrine. Therefore, we should act like it and not uh, act like we've got, uh, you know, a favorite pastor of our, of our, uh, you know, of the many pastors who are serving us. Uh, if you're in a big church like that, uh, or that, um, yeah. uh, you, you know, you can, you can divide the church um, over, um, hey, I, w- I want this pastor to baptize my baby instead of this pastor because I like him more. He smiles more, that sort of thing. <laughs> that would never happen, no. <laughs> no, it's never happened in the history of the church. No, no, never. No, okay, so so with this this thought from Jerome about schisms being divisions that, that arise out of morality and practice, heresies, one that, that arise from false teaching, but both of those, though, would be a concern for the Church, and, and especially as Paul addresses it here in the for the Corinthians, because those, those two things, doctrine and practice, are very much related to each other. And, and as I, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up, because as I was reflecting on, especially this first verse, with the thought of, you know, he appeals to them by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I was thinking about the way Luther explains the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, and what it means for God's name to be holy among us. And he identifies both of those things, that the Word of God is taught in truth and purity, and we as children of God lead holy lives according to that word of God that's taught in truth and purity. So those those two things very, very much go together, and it's what Paul is appealing for is something that we are praying for every time we, we pray the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Uh, exactly. Hallowing God's name means speaking good things about God, but also because you bear his name, right? Um, that means that your actions reflect on your God my kids are going around uh, and they bear my name and they're totally disrespectful to their teachers, uh, 
and getting in fights at school and so forth, it, it obviously reflects on me, what's going on in that family. Um, so, so also here, yeah, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and that name being hallowed, um, which is the name of his father, uh, that name being hallowed means speaking the right things, teaching the right things, and then also uh, practicing according to, uh, according to that doctrine. And you're very right that there is no separating uh, doctrine and practice uh, in fact, what eventually happens with schisms is that they reveal, uh, in the end, a, a doctrinal, a doctrinal difference, and not just a practice one. That's why we contend for like liturgical worship, um, because it's uh, it, it has to do with our doctrine of the Lord's Supper, that it is Jesus' true body and blood, and not to be dispensed, uh, you know, of uh, dispensed to the people flippantly, right? Um, uh, but rather to be taken reverently uh, in, the, in, in the context of the divine service. Yeah. Now, again, as Paul appeals in the name of the Lord Jesus, I really think that that is a very important thing to keep in mind, that this is happening in the name, by the name of the Lord Jesus, because he named the Lord Jesus at least eight times in the first nine verses, and he called him Lord at least six times in the first nine verses. So this is very clearly an important thing for Paul to have in mind the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think it's especially important for us as we consider what he's saying in this first verse of our section, that we would agree. So the, the agreement that he's calling for isn't just sort of, we all get along with each other, but it's agreement under the name or by the name. And again, keeping in mind the way that the the first petition invites us to think about the name and the word of Jesus together. That agreement must happen under his name and not somewhere else. And I think if we keep that in mind, that's going to help us from misapplying this verse as maybe sometimes happens in the larger church today. Yeah, very, very good point that uh, this just gets dumbed down to why can't we all just get along and uh, why yeah. can't we just uh, love one another and so put aside our differences? Well, if the difference has to do with you defining the word of God or acting contrary to it, then what do we have to do? We have to, we have to find uh, unification uh, in, what, uh, in Jesus, in the Lord. Uh, that's the whole point. Otherwise, there's not going to be unification. It'll be, either be me contending for my uh, pride and my opinion or you contending for your pride and your opinion. Um, so this is this is often the way that uh, heresy makes its way into the church as a matter of saying, Wait, why can't you tolerate me and right to- tolerate this and, and and be loving? But uh, if we go to First Corinthians thirteen, you see that love rejoices in the truth. That's what love does. And so uh, loving one another, being united, Paul makes very clear, is in Jesus Christ, Him crucified, His baptism, His word, and that alone. Everything else divides. Yeah, that's right. So talk about the the phrases that he uses then. So instead of there being these uh, schisms among you, these divisions, the opposite of that is to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Talk about what he means there. So to be united in the same mind and the same judgment is to be united in the mind of Christ. So this is what he'll say elsewhere, that we are to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. So that's what where our mind should be. Or let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, mm-hmm. who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, so forth and so on. 
So the mind of the Christian is the mind of, of, of Jesus, is the thought pattern of the Bible, of his word. Uh, so again, that is the uh, unifying factor. Um, nothing else will, <laughs> will unify human beings. Uh, there's a million different human beings and a million different opinions. Um, it's the word of God that unites, and so that's why it has to be, it has to be uh, held on to. Um, and then the same judgment, I, the way I would apply this is mind has to do with doctrine, with the teaching, with the truth. And then the same judgment uh, has to do with how you practice that. Since this is true, since there is one Christ, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of us all, since Jesus alone is Savior and head of the church, how are we, how are we to act? Hmm. Yeah. So, so if, if you were to go to your favorite pastor and ask him to baptize your child— or, or to ask him a question about theological practice, he's going to give you the exact same answer that your less favorite pastor would have given too. That's the same judgment going on between brother pastors. Yes, exactly. Uh, at least we, we should expect that. That's what we should want, right? Uh, among, yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That, that's the goal. That's the goal. And that's I guess that's what, what Paul calls his, his Corinthian brothers too. So as, as you said, he, he names them brothers here in this first verse. He calls them brothers again in the second verse of, the, of our text, verse 11, where he talks about this report that he's received from, from Chloe's people. Uh, do we know anything about, about who Chloe is outside of this verse? What's, what's going on here in verse 11? Well, Chloe is uh, obviously a member there at, uh, at, at, at Corinth. Um, seems like she's uh, come and visited in, in Ephesus and uh, has uh, told Paul about the divisions among them. And so he has intimate knowledge of this. Uh, this isn't gossip, because uh, it's public, right? Um, very, very often people are like, well, um, uh, you can't say anything bad about anybody, because uh, that, uh, that, that is uh, condemned by the Eighth Commandment. But that's, of course, not true. Sometimes you have to say bad things about people in order to correct the bad things that they're doing, right? So Chloe uh, reports this uh, to Paul out of love for the Christian congregation in Corinth. Uh, also, she's doing uh, her duty, and uh, Paul listens, uh, listens to her, doesn't condemn her, right? Uh, and Paul does the right thing, too, by actually mentioning her name. So he doesn't just say, I've heard it, right? That's he right. says, Chloe told Someone me. wrote me an anonymous note. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, someone wrote me an anonymous note. Someone, um, it, but I can't tell you because they swore me to secrecy, but they said you were, whatever, beating your wife. No, you, you can't do that, right? If you're going to accuse someone of, of wrongdoing, it has to be uh, public. It has to be, uh, you have to uh, have be willing to have your name stand as a witness to it. And so Paul and Chloe do just the right thing here, Chloe's people, um, that they report about an abuse in the church. They do so in love. And Paul says, hey, this is what Chloe told me, and I know it's true. So let's, let's, let's discuss it. And uh, no one's going to get mad at Chloe here. Instead, in the end, they're going to thank Chloe for bringing this uh, uh, to a godly conclusion by, uh, by, by bringing it to the, the Apostle Paul. So talk a little bit more about, about the Eighth Commandment in, in application here, because that, that is something that, that gets thrown around in ways that probably aren't the right application in our, our lives today, that, well, Chloe should have gone to these people first, 
you noted this is a public matter, which makes the the difference. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the Eighth Commandment forbids you from uh, talking poorly about people as as a matter of gossip that isn't that that, it, that brings up private affairs uh, with with other private people. But when there is public scandal, uh, when there are is public wrongdoing, um, uh, the Eighth Commandment just that doesn't apply um and it doesn't apply obviously because it's public everyone knows about it anyway now you still wouldn't want to go um you know talking bad about these people like uh you know louis over here just loves apollos and you wouldn't believe how he fawns over him and slobbers you know and so forth when when apollos is preaching right that's gossip that's not good that's not what chloe's doing though um the uh, Luther deals with this in, in the large catechism when he deals with the Eighth Commandment. He has this beautiful uh, and, and, and really tough teaching, preaching on the Eighth Commandment. Do not break it. A person's reputation is precious. You, you destroy his reputation and you could destroy all the other commandments. But all the other commandments are, are protecting for him. You can destroy his uh, ability to get a job. You can destroy his... Um, you can destroy his ability to hold property, right? Uh, I know people who have stood up, done the right thing, uh, gotten gotten um, a bad reputation because of it, because people are, are are gossiping about them, and then they get death threats, right? And they get their property they get their property destroyed. So a reputation is is an extremely important thing. Um, but then after he's talked about that, he's he then says when it comes to public matters. Uh, we are to uh, make make the good confession. We are to condemn what is wrong, and we are to con- uh, and we are to praise what is right. So I taught this to my catechism kids the other day that we have a Baptist pastor down the street, and I really like that Baptist pastor. He is a good man. Um, he's helpful. He volunteers at the fire department. Um, he's very friendly with me, um, and he's a sincere Christian. And now I'm going to say something bad about him, and I'm not gossiping, and I am not being hateful. He teaches that it's not Jesus' body and blood uh, in, in the sacrament, that it's only bread and wine. And when he does that, he contradicts the Lord Jesus, and he's being unfaithful. And you should never go to that church, because what he teaches is wrong. And by the way, he's a really good guy. He's a nice guy. Right? You, you get the point? So it, yeah. uh, that's I think that's a good example of... Yeah. Uh, of what you must do in pointing out public error, and at the same time, how that is that that is loving and uh, far far from breaking the eighth commandment is actually protecting it. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think you know, to I, I really appreciate the example that you brought up, and maybe the way that we even see that within the letter here is that even while Paul is is telling them this is bad what's going on he still calls them brothers so although you don't get the individual name of the particular person that he's a really good guy he still refers to them all as brothers so that you you see that keeping of the eighth commandment throughout in in both of those aspects yeah i think that's that's really helpful pastor Preuss. thank you thank you so he he then talks about what this quarreling looks like right it's been reported that there is this quarreling and what I mean is that there are these, these factions, and it's I follow Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and, and Christ. Help us get started. Help us to see what's, what's going on here in the, among the Corinthians. Yeah, so 
there are a number of pastors that have been pastors there at um, at the church in Corinth. Obviously, Paul starts the church. Uh, we know from uh, Acts 18 uh, that uh, Apollos is uh, a newer Christian. Um, he's from Alexandria, I believe. Um, that's significant because Alexandria is uh, a place where there is there are high academic standards and especially standards of speaking, of rhetoric, um, and so being able to speak well. Uh, Apollos uh, at first did not know the Christian faith very well. In fact, he only knew the baptism of John. He didn't know uh, to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, and so he actually had to be taken aside privately by uh, Priscilla and, uh, and Aquila in Ephesus and taught the way more uh, uh, more accurately, which is very interesting because there, there's an example of two laymen, including a woman, instructing a man who eventually becomes a pastor, uh, but they do so in private, right? Um, so it's, it's very appropriate, uh, just as it would be appropriate for uh, any lay person, man or woman, to come to me in my office um, and say, hey, pastor, you said this in the sermon. Um, uh, maybe you misspoke because this is what the Bible said. And I would say, wow, thank you. <laughs> uh, if, I, if I actually preach right. something wrong, right, I, I would want to hear that. And that's, that's the office of every Christian, even though not all of us are pastors. We all are to submit to the word of God. So uh, Apollos then uh, goes to, um, to Corinth, actually after Paul leaves it, and uh, Apollos uh, wows them with his speaking. He confounds the Jews, uh, the, the, the opposing Jewish side in Corinth, um, and he becomes an, an obvious favorite there. Um, and it's, it's, it's also very clear why, uh, because he speaks so eloquently. Um, and he speaks, Paul doesn't say anything negative about, about Apollos. That's, that's not the point here. Um, but uh, he, he, so he, he is preaching Christ, and he is preaching Christ crucified. Uh, but the reason, the reason he's people's favorite is not because he's teaching something better or more advanced than Paul, Right? They're teaching exactly the same thing. The reason he's people's favorite is because he's a better speaker. And that's, that's what's obvious there. Um, yeah. And being a let's, better... Let's save... Well, I was just going to say, Pastor, Pastor Price, let's, let's, we're coming up on a break. So with, with those things about Apollos in mind, let's, let's pause there and, and pick up anything more about him and then pick up Cephas and these other factions on the other side of the break. So you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Christian Price this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 14th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17 with Pastor Christian Preuss. He serves at Mount Hope Lutheran Church and School in Casper, Wyoming. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we were talking about these factions that developed there in the Corinthian congregation. You were talking about Apollos especially. Tell us anything more we need to know about Apollos, especially the, as his rhetoric, and then take us into these other factions that follow Cephas and Christ. Yeah, so he's a great speaker, and a, a great a great speaker uh, doesn't just mean uh, that he can get up and in, uh, into the pulpit and uh, preach preach a good sermon. Um, it also means that uh, he he's got the sort of persona right that attracts people. Um, so part of rhetoric is your ethos, is your character, is how people perceive you, um, and so uh, he's your typical likable pastor. Right, so some pastors are more likable than others. They're just easier to get uh, along with. Right, you just kind of track with their personality. They're not weird. Right, so that's Apollos. He's he's smart. He's engaging. He's exciting. He smiles, um, and he makes you feel like you're important. Okay, and none of those things are wrong. <laughs> right, none of those things are wrong. Um, and then there's uh, Cephas, and Cephas is of course Saint Peter, and it appears that Saint Peter has uh, visited. Um, Corinth. He uh, is later referred to as someone who brings along a believing wife, um, and so it, it it does seem that he's he's visited there. In any case, he's well known. He is the 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 leader of the apostles, you could say, um, as uh, as the one that uh, was uh, he, James, and John were the ones who were uh, especially with with Jesus. Um, including, for instance, at, at the Transfiguration. So Peter just, Peter just has this reputation. And what's going to be very obvious when we get into 2 Corinthians is that the problem with the I, I am of Cephas, I am of Peter, I'm, I'm of his faction, his party, is actually going to get worse. Now, this is not Peter's fault, but it's the same issue that uh, poor Paul has to deal with when it comes to uh, the Galatian Christians um, and, and elsewhere, and that is that you get these uh, Jewish factions um, that are insisting, they're coming out of Jerusalem, and they're insisting that they come from the true apostles. They come from James, the brother of Jesus. They come from Peter, the rock, right, Cephas. And they, uh, they're saying that you must circumcise. They're saying that you must keep the law of Moses, and so you get a faction that's actually teaching false doctrine eventually. Uh, Paul will call them the super apostles, uh, those who, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, those who are trying to undercut his apostleship by claiming that they're from Peter, and yet they're not. Uh, so um, both Apollos and Peter are fully aligned with St. Paul, and Paul makes that very clear, that they're all preaching the same Christ, the same baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Um, so the fault is not in any of these uh, sort of personalities or in the fact that Peter himself has this just acknowledged leadership in Jerusalem. That's wonderful. We acknowledge people who have uh, leadership qualities also. Um, and you're going to have different qualities in different pastors. That's just not the point. Those are all wonderful. But what is the point is that people are saying, I belong to Peter I belong to Apollos, I belong to Paul, as if they are rival factions, as if they are teaching different things. Uh, and that's simply not what the church is about. What is uh, amazing, too, if we go back to 
um, verse uh, verse 10, is that this word for united there, that you all be united um, in the same mind and the same judgment, uh, the word is uh, put together like uh, uh, like a body is put together, right? And so Paul will talk about this elsewhere where the 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 hand doesn't get jealous of the eye. The eye and the hand work together. And so you're going to have different qualities and different people, including in different ministers. And we're all to uh, put those qualities toward the advancement of the kingdom of God and to the preaching of the gospel and to love for one another and the, and, and the spread of this gospel throughout the world. Hmm. Now, what about this, what sounds like at least a fourth faction, those who are saying, I follow Christ. What, What's happening there? Is is that a positive thing, or is this another group reacting to the others and but not taking quite the right direction? Do we have any idea what's what this fourth group is? You know, I don't know. It seems like a lot of speculation to me to say that when they say I follow Christ, they they mean something sinister. Um, so I, I mean, I think that the, the natural sense is that um, they're saying. I follow. I follow Christ. I don't follow. I don't. I don't follow um, just a person. However, you could take it to say I follow Christ, and so I don't need a pastor at all, right? Mm-hmm. And that would be a bad thing, right? I don't need Paul. I don't need. I don't need Cephas. I don't need Apollos. Uh, I got my own, like one. You know, I got my own connection with my personal Jesus, and I don't need your your ministry of the word. Um, and uh, I'm sure there are other opinions on what this means as far as uh, I am of Christ. Sure, sure. I think one of the things that does come through, especially when you take a look at it in the Greek, is you see the word I, the, that simple personal pronoun repeated each time, which is, is part of the problem. And, and as you know, the word I in Greek is not necessary. You can simply use it, the verb, and the, the pronoun is in, is in the verb. But every time it shows up, it, it emphasizes. So I do this, I do that. That's kind of the the spirit in which the Corinthians are living right now that Paul is addressing. Now, before we move on to the way Paul responds to this, uh, perhaps the, the elephant in the room is that you and I are both Lutheran pastors, named after Martin Luther, a, a man. And, and, and in Casper, Wyoming, there's going to be a Luther classical college, not a, not a Christ classical college, but a, a Luther classical college. So, Maybe we should just spend at least a couple of minutes thinking about this and answering, are, are Lutherans being schismatic by using the name Lutheran? Yeah, I didn't mean that a yeah. I didn't mean that as a yeah. It's like, yeah, we are. <laughs> uh, but no, but yeah, this is an issue. And especially since uh, uh, we just celebrated uh, Reformation Day, um, that right. uh, Luther did not start a new church, right? That's what my sermon uh, is about <laughs> uh, for Reformation Day. Uh, Luther did not start a new church. There's no such thing as starting a new church. Uh, if you started a new church, it's a false church, right? What he did is he reformed the church, right? He kept, uh, uh, he returned it to its faithfulness, the same church that started in the Garden of Eden and that was perfected by the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and so Luther had no intention of naming it the Lutheran Church. Um, in fact, the same way that um, the, the, the Christian Church gets named, named the Christian Church, uh, it, it was an insult, right? So it, they were first called Christians at Antioch, and it's because they just wouldn't sh- shut up about 
Christ. They just kept on talking about Jesus Christ. Christ is my savior. Christ crucified for me. Uh, it sounded like a bunch of Lutherans. And so they got named Christians. Oh, look at these Christians. All they do is talk about this Christ fellow, right? It was, and it was meant to be an insult to them, you followers of Christ. They were also called Nazarenes as an insult, right? And the same thing happened with, uh, with the Lutherans. Uh, they were called the evangelicals because they stressed the gospel. Um, now evangelical means something totally different in the American context. Uh, but they were called evangelicals, the evangelical church, um, because they stressed the gospel. And they were called Lutherans as an insult. Um, and at first, Luther said, let no one call, uh, call themselves by my name. You are Christians. You don't use my name. Um, but what happens is that names stick. And then names get identified. You just keep on getting called a Lutheran, right? It's like Melanchthon calling the Genesio Lutherans, Genesio Lutherans. Oh, you're the genuine Lutherans, right? To make fun of them. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what we are. We'll take it, right? <laughs> and so the, it's the Lutherans too, um, where finally they're like, yeah, we, we, we follow this guy, uh, not in the sense that we follow him, a personality, but we follow his teaching. And if Lutheran means uh, the teaching that, that actually says what the Bible says, then fine, we'll take the name, we'll take the insult. So it took an entire generation for the Lutherans actually to allow the name to stand. But we didn't come up with this ourselves. And then uh, you just have to live with it. Now it's a, now it's a very um, yeah. useful name to describe uh, a confession. And that is the true confession of the Bible. Yeah, that's that's right, and I think you know maybe we just didn't have the right marketing team because we didn't get Catholic, even though we're we're actually universal in doctrine, and we didn't get evangelical, even though we we have the gospel, and even and we didn't get Orthodox, even though we hold to the. I mean, we we got stuck yeah. with Lutherans. We maybe just needed a better marketing team. We we didn't even get Baptist, even though we're the ones who actually care about baptism and actually baptize the babies. Right. Like any of these would have been better, right? Except for like, <laughs> but here we are. We're even the right Jehovah's Witnesses, right? We're the ones who witness to Yahweh. You know, we're just not the right uh, Mormons. So that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's we won't right. take yeah. that one. That's right. So, so this the spirit of factionalism is is condemned by Paul. Says this is not the right way. And then, in order to address this this quarrel that he describes in verse twelve, he begins a, a series of I think what are rhetorical questions. So, talk to us about these these rhetorical questions and how he's using them there in verse thirteen. Yeah, so rhetorical question that is uh, a question that you don't really expect an answer to because it's so obvious. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? Obviously not. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's ridiculous. And then you're supposed to conclude from these that therefore, right? You don't say I'm of Paul or um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm of this uh, this faction as if Christ is divided. Um, so the, the the fact that he talks though about uh, the crucifixion and crucifixion and baptism tells you a lot because um, in this in these rhetorical questions are just the most important things that actually unite Christians. First of all, is Christ united? It's all about Jesus, and obviously he's not united. It's one body, right? We are the body of Christ, and he is our head. Two, um, was Paul crucified for you? No, and you know the answer is that Jesus was crucified for you, Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, and this is the basis of simply everything. This is God's love. God shows his love in this way, that he sends his son to die for us. 
Um, and that this atonement that God, uh, Christ by his bitter suffering and death pays the punishment for our sin and reconciles us to God, uh, this is the sine qua non. It is the indispensable thing that makes a Christian a Christian and that unites us all because we're all therefore equal in Christ Jesus, uh, none before or after another because we all have the same righteousness, the same forgiveness of sins. Uh, and we don't claim um, our our own righteousness and, 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 and compare our righteousness with the righteousness, righteousness of others because we say, we confess with Isaiah that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. We have the same righteousness of the same, of the same Christ who was crucified for us. And then finally, how do we get this righteousness? Well, we were clothed in this righteousness uh, through baptism where we, we, we were united with Christ. And so right here in these three beautiful questions, Paul just nails it down by saying, Christ is our, uh, we are the body of Christ. He is our head. His crucifixion, his atonement for our sins is what matters and what unites us. And we receive uh, uh, the, uh, the benefits of Christ through holy baptism. This is what unites us all. Yeah, and I think recognizing that in those three rhetorical questions, he identifies those three primary points and holds out their great importance helps us especially as we get into the next verses where Paul starts saying things that that could be taken the wrong way. He's like, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. Well, <laughs> hold on. Why, why, Paul? I thought baptism was really important. It is really important. The fact that he mentions it at all indicates its great importance, so that we don't take these questions the wrong way and think that somehow, oh, Paul didn't think baptism was all that important. No, he thinks it's quite important, but he's saying something different as he starts in to talk about who he did or didn't baptize. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. It's it's funny how quickly you can twist the word of God and be like, well, you know, Paul didn't baptize, so baptism isn't that important. Let's just just believe in Jesus. That's all that matters, right? That that's sort of uh, nonsense. Uh, yeah, believing in Jesus means believing in his baptism. That's where he came to you, right? And Paul, uh, yeah, Paul Paul is is saying uh, just how important it is that you were baptized into Christ. Right, not into Paul, not into Peter, not into Apollo, Paulus, but but into Christ, um, and he's stressing something quite different. Right, when he talks now about saying uh, he's glad that he didn't baptize uh, so many of them. Yeah. So, okay, what what does he mean then? Why why is this important? Why does he thank God that he only baptized a few, and he starts to name some of who those people are? Yeah, because he uh, he doesn't want a cult of personality around himself. Uh, for people to get the impression that because he baptized them, therefore um, uh, he, you know, he, he somehow is uh, participating in, in, in saving them, right? That, that he is somehow their, their savior. And this is especially important because Paul's not there anymore. Paul's not their pastor, right? right? So he wants to say, cling to your pastor, right? Um, just as uh, any leader in the church should do, right? So you can have like these internet sensations, good faithful men, uh, pastors on the internet, but if uh, if they're like teaching my lay men, right, and lay women because they're watching their podcasts or whatever, or people are listening to us, uh, it's our job to point people back to their parish pastor, right, and say that's that's, right. that's God's man whom God specifically called, right, and sent to take care of you, who's to pray for you, and I don't even know your name, right. Um, I mean, Paul knows their names, but you you, you get the point. Um, sure. So also uh, here is that Paul was, 
Paul goes and he founds all sorts of different churches. And, and his job then is to uh, set up pastors in those churches. And, uh, and then he, he might come back and he might not, right? Um, and so he does not want uh, a faction to, um, to form around, around him. Yeah, that, that's right. So, I mean, he, it's, again, it's not that he's, he wants people to be baptized. Absolutely. That's why he mentions it at all. But he's, he's thankful that he wasn't the particular one that served as the instrument to do so, so that that provides just another aspect where a faction shouldn't and won't, he won't allow that faction to develop around him. Now, he, he names Crispus and Gaius as those that he knows he's baptized, and then he says, well, I, I also baptized the household of Stephanus now that I think about it more, and beyond that, I, I don't think I baptized anybody else. So it's almost like you're, you're witnessing Paul, kind of like I'm doing right now, sort of looking up and figuring, okay, now who did I baptize? I know these ones, oh yeah, those two, and I can't remember any more. But what, what do we make of this trip down memory lane with Paul as he thinks about who he wrote down in the official acts there in, at the church in Corinth? Well, obviously, it means that the Bible can't be inspired, right? Um, and that uh, it's not inerrant because Paul Paul forgot something, right? So the first that thing that we is out of bounds. Yeah, okay, that's out of bounds. We can't say that. Um, yeah, because it's it's also ridiculous that answer. Right. Uh, so um, the, when we talk about the inspiration of Holy Scripture, uh, we are not talking about a mechanical inspiration. No one's ever taught a mechanical inspiration. It's just plain silly. A mechanical inspiration would be like this this idea that the Holy Spirit zaps Paul and he becomes the sort of like machine that just like mindlessly writes things down. That's not what happens. Paul knows these people. Paul uh, has studied, right, the word of God, so forth and so on. Um, but the Holy Spirit uses him as his instrument, including all of his thoughts, all of his memories, his writing style, and so forth, um, in order to uh, get the... Uh, the words that the Holy Spirit wants written down in Holy Scripture. So that's what we see here. And um, it doesn't include a, a memory uh, lapse uh, uh, in, in Paul. Um, there's, there, there's, there's nothing to actually indicate that. Actually, I think what the context would say, right. Stephanus uh, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And it turns out Stephanus right now is with St. Paul. Um, and so what it appears to be is that uh, St. Paul is saying, I thank God I baptized no one among you right there, right? Except for these families who are right there right now, right? And then he's like, right. he looks over and he sees, oh, yes, yeah, Stephanus is here. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and he's like, oh, yeah, I did, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, right? But he's here, here. Right? He, he's here in Ephesus. He's right. not there at Corinth, right? right. Uh, besides that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. So this is, this is both, um, just practically speaking, um, just what happened. But two, it's a really good rhetorical ploy um, to say, um, I, the, I baptized a couple of you there. Oh, yeah, there's one more. So instead of saying, uh, I've baptized... Um, a whole bunch of, or I, I've baptized no more than five of you, right? Which is like, okay, you, you still baptize a lot of people, Paul, right? He says one or two, and then he's like, oh yeah, and one more, but that's not, that, that's not a big deal. So it's, it's a very good rhetorical ploy to sort of underplay how much he's baptized. And again, he's doing that not to um, uh, say that baptism isn't important, but to say that his, uh, it's not about him, right, baptizing. It's about the right. baptism itself, which is the baptism of Jesus Christ. Um, hmm. yeah. And, 
the, the last verse then in talking about uh, Christ not sending him to baptize um, teaches us actually a lot. Uh, one is that he's not, once again, this is not devaluing baptism, obviously. It is rather saying that Paul, as someone who is planting churches and then moving on, is not uh, going to be the regular pastor of these congregations. So the longest he stays at any congregation is Corinth and Ephesus. And you think about all the other congregations that he, uh, that he founds, that he starts, that he goes to, and you're talking dozens. Um, and it, the, the longest he ever stays is three years uh, in Ephesus uh, and then one and a half years in Corinth. And so he's just not the one doing the majority of the baptizing, the one being the sort of parish pastor there. Uh, that's the only point that he's making, that Christ hasn't sent him to baptize, but rather to found churches, um, and then to move on. Um, and Paul goes where he's told to go, right? I mean, <laughs> read the book of Acts, and like he's, he's told to go to Macedon, even though he was planning on staying um, in, in uh, Asia Minor. He's told uh, to stay in Corinth, even though he was planning on moving on. He's told to stay in Ephesus, Right, and then eventually he's told, "Hey, you're going to Rome, no matter whether you like it or not." <laughs> right, um, and so he makes his will, God's will. Um, yeah. And then the, well, the and just whole- if I can add about just briefly about that language, I, I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach. I think we could also understand that as in addition to what you're saying, which I think is very helpful. Think about the way that you know, Jesus in the Gospels quotes from uh, Hosea 6, I think, where he, he quotes, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, when the Lord said that in Hosea, and he did want his people to do the sacrifices, but he wanted them with mercy. And so it's it's not maybe the way to think about it. I I was not sent to with the primary only purpose of baptizing, but especially to do the preaching. And and as you've said, that certainly played out in the history in the book of Acts and and here in Corinth. So again, not a devaluing of baptism, but an elevation of the preaching that Paul did now for a particular purpose. And this, what he says now about the preaching of the gospel is very important for this section and propels us into the next one that we'll look at more tomorrow. So what does he say here about his preaching of the gospel and the way that he's gone about that? Yeah, that it, it doesn't have to do uh, with eloquent uh, wisdom um, and the uh, sort of like how you convince people in uh, the secular world, right? Um, By appealing to reason, appealing to, say, like, your own authority, uh, appealing to uh, majority opinion, and then wowing them with your special rhetoric. But rather, he preaches it simple, catechism style, um, that it's the basics, and um, he remind, he's going to remind them of that, that there is nothing greater and no eloquence could out-eloquent the gospel. Uh, the, wisdom of, the wisdom of God puts to shame the, uh, the wisdom of man and makes it uh, look foolish. Um, that, that the foolishness of God does that, in fact, and that the simple preaching of Christ crucified um, uh, puts to shame uh, the wisdom of the strong and the elite, uh, and so forth. So, yeah, this is the transition uh, to all that, which uh, not only uh, devalues, um, sort of like, uh, uh, not devalues, but it says, don't worry about whether it's Paul preaching it. Don't worry about it, whether it's Apollos preaching it. Don't worry about whether it's Peter preaching it. Whoever is preaching it, um, as long as he's uh, you know called to do that and he's preaching this, 
that is what is important is Christ crucified. It's the subject. It's, 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 it's the content, uh, not the people. So it's a beautiful transition to that. Yeah, that's right. The the power is found not in the eloquence, not in the the organization of the sermon or the ability of the the speaker, the rhetoric of Apollos, but the power is actually found in the content, in the gospel, in the message that Christ is crucified. So it doesn't it it doesn't say that these things are are out of bounds. I mean, Paul as as you mentioned, Paul's using a rhetorical device just in this very section. But it's that's not the point. The point is that the gospel is what has the power. That's what actually converts. That's what actually is going to bring unity to this this congregation in, in Corinth. Is is not the the rhetoric or anything else other than the gospel that Christ is crucified for you. Got about two minutes here, Pastor Preuss. Uh, talk more about that. Help us to to wrap things up today. Yeah. So um, that that's exactly the main point that that is being. Uh, uh, put across here by Paul, but we, what we do need to realize is that the gospel is made up of words, which means it's made up of grammar, um, and grammar um, and, and words being put together is necessarily put into some sort of rhetoric, right? And so what we don't want to do and what we hear too often, especially in Lutheran circles, is to be like, it doesn't matter how you actually present this, um, right? You don't... Uh, no, words need to be presented. They need to be spoken out loud, and they can either be spoken in a really angry tone, right, or a really monolithic tone that no one can really pay attention to, so forth and so on. So St. Paul is not saying that, you know, don't worry, pastors, uh, about how you're going to present the gospel. Um, we should take great care in presenting it in such a way that it does not, uh, like our own personality, or our own boringness or our own weirdness doesn't come between uh, uh, the people and the gospel because that can happen a lot. Um, and so, uh, the, the, but, but the point is that to get that basic simple content out does not take, you know, the greatest orator in the world. Um, and it doesn't take the man with the highest authority in the world. Uh, and everything should be done for the sake of the content, uh, not for the sake of... Um, you know, winning accolades for ourselves. How much yeah. time do I have? Do I have to... uh, 30 seconds? Just wrap, wrap things up. All right. The, the, the only other thing I would say is that um, pastors can specialize, right? And you see that with um, like seminary professors, they don't go and baptize uh, usually. Um, and, and this is what the church has always done is specialize and, and um, say, hey, you're really good at this. You go do that. And that is what St. Paul did in planting churches. Uh, it's what we continue to do in the freedom of the gospel that, uh, that Christ gives us, so long as everything is for the benefit of the church and in proper order. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's all put into the service of the gospel, that, that ministerial use of these things, always in service of, of proclaiming that simple message, Christ crucified for you. Pastor Christian Preuss is pastor at Mount Hope Lutheran Church and School in Casper, Wyoming. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. Unity is found in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not divided. He is united, and we are united in him. His crucifixion unites us together, cleanses us from our sins that we have received in the gift of holy baptism— be of the same mind, the same judgment in his name. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. 
It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.